0: Our scripture, scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So give for alms those things that are within, and see, everything will be clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds, and neglect justice, and the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without realizing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he said, Woe also to you, lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that this generation may be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged to this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. When he went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile toward him and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Happy words from Jesus for us today. I'm not sure of all the meals in the Gospel of Luke, if this is the one that I would have wanted to attend. uh, Maybe I'd want to avoid this particular meal. This was Jesus' rebuke to the religious leaders of his day, and at no point, at no time in Jesus' earthly ministry do we hear him speak with such forcefulness about any particular attitude or any particular sin than he does on this occasion. During the season of Lent, we've been walking through the meals that Jesus shared in the Gospel of Luke, Um, meals with Pharisees, meals with disciples, meals with the crowds, and here is one of the more unpleasant of these meals as he is with a Pharisee, and so it's a rather hard teaching um, about hypocrisy, so let us pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we uh, come before you today asking your Holy Spirit to be with us to guide our uh, preaching and hearing of your word. We pray that your spirit will speak through me and into each of our hearts that we might know what is true and what is good and what is right. We ask that you will give us the gift of sincere faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, over the years as a pastor and also as a Christian, I've, I've heard lots of reasons that people give for not wanting to be a part of the church. I don't want to be a part of the church. I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity or uh, the Christian religion or the church. And some of those reasons are quite understandable. Uh, someone has had a bad experience in the past, a traumatic experience. Maybe they experienced a kind of abuse from a, a, a church leader at some point and they just can't come back. That's understandable. Other examples, uh, reasons I think are kind of bland actually. Like I don't really have as, that much time. Um, I, I like to do other things on Sunday mornings. Um, I don't really believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, I don't really feel the need for God in my life. So there are some understandable reasons. There are some bland reasons. But of all the reasons that I've heard over the years, the, mo- the most common is uh, a little bit puzzling to me. And that is uh, that the church is full of hypocrites. Have you ever heard this charge before? People don't want to have anything to do with the church because the church is full of hypocrites. And uh, sometimes I might say to myself, well, there's always room for one more. You know, I mean, just welcome. We can all join in together. But the truth is that I I actually don't believe that the church is full of of hypocrites. I think there are many charges against the church that are valid and legitimate. I don't think, however, that the church is full of hypocrites. Certainly, there are hypocrites in the church. Don't doubt that at all. But is it true that the church is full of them? I don't think so. And uh, so why is it then that people um, make such a charge that the church is full of hypocrites over and over again? I think it's not because they don't understand the church rightly. I think it's they don't really understand what hypocrisy is. And that's what Jesus is dealing with, and that's what we're talking about today. Uh, If you ask them... Well, why do you think the church is full of hypocrites? They might say to you, well, I know Mr. So-and-so, and he goes to church every single Sunday. In fact, he's an elder at the church down the street. But during the week, I see him doing X, Y, and Z. In other words, I see him committing a sin. I see him doing things that are morally questionable. Um, And so that, I would determine, is hypocrisy. so for, for, some, for some of us, you know, we, we understand that we go to church and we hope and we pray and we seek to become more like Christ, to live moral lives, to follow his ethic of love. But it actually takes some time for that formation to happen in our lives. For some, it takes our, ho- our whole lives. We don't come to church to show that we're flawless, We come to church because we're aware of of our deep need for God's forgiveness and God's mercy and God's grace and the strength of the Holy Spirit to be with us as we seek to continue to grow in our lives uh, as human beings and as Christians. If a father claimed to be morally superior as a father than all the other fathers, claim to be morally flawless as a father, and then you see that person yelling at their children angrily, well, that's a good example of hypocrisy because the person is claiming to be something that he is is not. And certainly there are those in the church. But for a Christian who comes to church and then fails during the week, that doesn't just make that person a hypocrite. That makes that person simply a Christian um, and uh, a human being. After all, the, the church is really the only organization that actually requires you to be a sinner in order to join it. Um, So that's the first requirement. So if the complaint were that the church is full of sinners, well then that would be an accurate description of who we are. But hypocrisy is a particular sin. It It is fraud by which a person claims to be something that she is not. If I claim to be sinless and then I sin, I'm guilty of hypocrisy. If I say that I I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z, and then I do X, Y, and Z. That, in fact, is hypocrisy, um, because a hypocrite is a person who lives a life that is a sham. In the ancient world, in antiquity, the the word hypocrite came out of the theater, uh, where a hypocrite was a play actor, uh, somebody who is pretending to be something other than than they are something that they are not, right? They put on a facade for the purpose of entertainment, for the purpose of the play, an outward appearance of being something that they're not. Do you remember the old Western films where a cowboy would ride into town, and there'd be these several buildings, maybe a bank, there'd be a general store, maybe a saloon, and uh, and then if you go to Universal Studios when you're a little kid, you see that. That these are actually just front, front buildings. That, that, that was actually something that was quite disappointing to me when I first went to Universal Studios as a kid to see that in fact there's nothing behind these storefronts. It's just wooden scaffolding. Um, nothing behind them. They're just front structures. Outwardly they appear to be true buildings but inside there was nothing. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in our text. The passage begins with this introduction um, where it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to his home to dine with him. And so Jesus went in and took his place at the table. He accepted the invitation. He went in and he sat down. And this is actually the beginning of the hypocrisy as we see through the rest of the story. The Pharisee did not ask Jesus over for dinner because he was concerned that Jesus was hungry. He wanted to give him a nice meal. He did not invite Jesus over for dinner because he wanted to have an enjoyable meal and conversation with Jesus because he wanted to learn from Jesus. No, he invited Jesus over for dinner because he was trying to trap him one way or another. So right from the start, Jesus senses the disingenuous invitation, the hypocritical invitation that he was receiving. So Jesus says, yes, I'll have dinner with you. He walks in and he takes his seat at the table. And what do we learn? This. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not wash before dinner. Now why was Jesus not washing his hands before sitting at the table? Why was this such a shock to the Pharisee? You'd think that Jesus might have picked up on some of the social cues like they were, oh my goodness, like he didn't wash his hands before he sat down. Was the Pharisee a germaphobe? Did this take place during a global pandemic and you better wash your hands before you go to dinner? There weren't any hand sanitizer in those days. No, according to the Pharisees and the laws of the rabbis, it was a requirement not for hygiene, not for hygiene or for cleanliness or for health or for germs, but for religious and ceremonial purposes that a person would go through a liturgical rite of washing their hands before Uh, sitting down for dinner. Now this law wasn't required in the law of God. It wasn't required in the Bible. It was a tradition that was instituted and enforced by the Pharisees, this religious group of people in the first century. In other words, it was a law that was added to the law of Moses, to the law of God which is actually the definition of legalism. And Jesus is not interested at all in in, uh, these extra laws. Uh, He doesn't make any big deal out of it. He doesn't say, oh, I'm not going to wash my hands. Your laws are crazy and they don't apply to me. Um, He just simply omits it. He walks in, he sits down, he just doesn't bother with it. He doesn't need to wash his hands because his hands are not dirty. Uh, Symbolic cleansing is not needed for Jesus. Uh, he doesn't need symbolic cleansing. In Psalm 24, the psalmist writes this, "...who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands..." and pure hearts who do not lift their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. Jesus lived a blameless life. With his hands, he fed the hungry. He healed the eyes of the blind. He cast out demons. There was nothing unclean about his hands. His heart was pure. And in contrast to him, the Pharisees were tireless in making sure that their hands were literally clean with ceremonial washings, but their hearts were filled filthy. This was the point that Jesus was making and so he says to the Pharisees, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Can you imagine washing just the outside of a mug that you're going to use to put some orange juice in and to serve breakfast with? I mean, can you imagine washing the bottom of the plate, but not the top of the plate? Nobody in their right mind would do the dishes like this, right? In other words, he was saying to the Pharisees, you look great on the outside, but on the inside, there's not a beautiful geode to enjoy, as we learned from Tom. The inside, is fat, in fact, is full of wickedness. Your hearts are in the wrong place. They're full of corruption and they're filthy. And so Jesus goes on uh, to bring oracles. This is when a prophet of God pronounces doom and judgment um, prefaced by the word woe. Whenever you see this word woe in the Bible, take notice of it because it's the strongest verbal form of Judgment and warning that God gives by his prophets. Remember, Jesus held a threefold office that we think about when we think about Jesus that he was priest, he was king and he was prophet. Here is Jesus the prophet speaking to the powers at be, the religious authorities who he accused of being filled with pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. And so after the conversation about the inside and the outside of the cups and the plates, the conversation gets even more heated. Jesus standing in the prophetic tradition. This is what he says. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. In other words, he's saying, You tithe, you're really big on tithing, and that's good. That's a foundational practice for followers of God, for people who love God. Um, But if you see someone on the ground uh, find a piece of mint, you're going to demand that that person takes a tenth of that piece of mint and put it in the plate. Meanwhile, you've walked by several beggars who don't know where their next meal is coming, and you completely ignored them. You just don't get it, do you, is what he's saying. You're scrupulous in your tithing, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and showing the love of God to those who are in need. So what was Jesus saying? He was saying that anybody can tithe. That's easy. That's foundational. Nothing super Christian about that. It says it is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. So you're missing the weightier matters of the law. The scene continues with another oracle of judgment. He goes on in the next verse to say, woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. These folks love to be honored. And so in the synagogue, there was the chief seat in the synagogue. And the, the most honorable person, usually the visiting rabbi, would get to sit, sit in that seat of honor. And everyone would look up to that person. When they're walking in public, they're wearing their religious garments. They love people to recognize their austerity and to honor them in public. Um, and, uh, and this is actually a problem that is reserved pretty much for the clergy, for people who go out into public wearing a a clerical collar or something like that. Um, And it was a problem in the first century just as it can be today. Jesus said woe to you for you are like unmarked graves. People walk all over them without realizing it. I won't belabor this uh, too much because I mentioned it in the last series looking at Matthew's version of this text. But if you've ever visited um, Palestine in the Mount of Olives, this is the Valley of Tombs, the Valley of Prophets. These are tombs of prophets and others. And in the first century, there's um, a custom in the ancient world that when the pilgrims come in from surrounding villages to Jerusalem on the feast days, they would come from all over the place and it was customary to whitewash these tombs um, on the grave sites. Not all the grave sites were actually in cemeteries, but they could be found outside cemeteries and you would be ceremonially unclean if you walked on someone else's tomb. And so they would whitewash these tombs so that you could see them, so that you could walk around them. Um, In other words, whitewashing was a way of saying, don't walk here. And Jesus said, you are like these graves, the ones that haven't been whitewashed. Nobody can see them and people walk all over them. In other words, you are actually making people unclean. You are spreading your filth. People who follow your religiosity, your legalistic teachings are becoming worse as a result. At this point, one of the scribes not a Pharisee, but a scribe, you know, a scribe's person who writes things down. It was, was a lawyer and an expert in religious law, not, not a kind of an advocate for justice that we would understand an attorney to be today, but an expert in God's law who simply couldn't take it anymore. And he says, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. Which I think is kind of funny, you know. Um, you picture Jesus, you know, you, you wonder if, if Jesus... Um, might respond by saying, oh, I'm sorry, Uh, I I didn't mean to include you in in my scathing denunciation of the Pharisees. Um, But no, he doesn't say that. He just doubles down and he says, well, woe to you too then, lawyers. Uh, For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves don't lift a finger to ease them. In other words, you put all kinds of legal restrictions and requirements on people that God doesn't command, and you won't even obey them yourselves. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. Here again, he's talking about saying that your, your fathers killed the prophets and you're essentially murdering them as well by denying their words. Jesus goes on, he continues, he says, Therefore, the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that this generation will be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. Earlier, Jesus had said this is a wicked and adulterous generation. He singled out his own generation as the worst generation in the history of the human race. Like even worse than the Gen Xers which is my generation. Uh, Even worse than the boomers and the millennials. No, his generation was the worst generation in all of human history. Why? Is it because they were more sinful than every other generation? No, it's because they received more light from God than any other in the ancient world. The principle was this, to whom much is given, much is required. That generation witnessed the incarnate Son of God in their midst who came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key to knowledge, right? The knowledge that Christ is Lord, that Christ is Messiah. You did not enter yourselves and you hinder those who were entering. These were the theologians. These were the clergy of the day. And instead of opening the doors to the kingdom to let people come in, to let hungry and thirsty souls come in, they had those doors closed and locked. I had a conversation recently with someone, and we were talking about, Kind of the church and the church in the West in decline and what is threatening to the church and secularism and atheism and all these things and and uh, and, and my suggestion is that uh, the greatest threat to the church today is um, is not atheism it's it's actually uh, clergy who have lost their conviction uh, clergy pastors who who don't believe in the gospel anymore, but continue to lead congregations. Um, There was a theologian who said the greatest threat to the church is not atheism, but indifference. It's not atheism, but it's indifference. Just take it or leave it. Pope Benedict uh, said that practical or functional atheism, which is that uh, those, those who say they are Christian but live as though God otherwise doesn't really have any bearing on their life or exist for that matter, functional atheism is a greater threat than actual atheism to the church. We hear about the greater judgment of those who are called to preach. Those who are uh, given the responsibility of preaching the word and tending the flock. And we hear about how we will be held to a higher judgment. But there's nothing new about this. It was the clergy that killed Jesus. It was the clergy that ordered Jesus killed. The Pharisees began as a group committed and dedicated to righteousness and they never achieved it. They were accused by Jesus as being counterfeit, fraudulent. When sincere faith and sincere righteousness appeared in their midst, their counterfeit lives were exposed. When Jesus showed up, they were seen as hypocrites their hypocrisy was was revealed that's why jesus had to go he wasn't killed because he said consider the lilies how they spin jesus was killed because he said consider the pharisees how they lie Luke continues, when he went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile toward him and to cross-examine him about many things lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They were thinking, listen to what he says, write it down, we'll use it against him, and we'll get rid of him. And that's exactly what they did. So here's where this ends up for you and me today. Is our Christian faith And is our commitment to Christ surface deep? Are we interested in how we appear to the watching world? Is it sometimes an inch deep and a mile wide? Are we playing at being Christian? Or is it real? Is it the real thing? Lent is about examining the sincerity of our faith. Luke doesn't ask us if we fall short. He doesn't ask us if we blow it during the week. He doesn't ask us if we fail, if we struggle, if we sin. That's not his interest. His interest is in whether we examine whether our faith is something that is in us and not something that we just wear on the outside on Sunday mornings. We're invited to ask ourselves this question every single morning when we first wake up. God, are you real to me? will I be real to you in my response? Otherwise, we're just like the scribes. We're just like the Pharisees. Good on the outside, but lost and confused on the inside. Let us pray. God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit such that there would never be within our lives, individually or corporately as a church, the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus condemned in the Pharisees during that lunch. Give us the gift of sincere faith, a longing to know you, to love you, to be loved by you, to be formed by you. Eliminate any kind of falsity or hypocrisy that would exist within us and make us pure.